Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. What up, what up, what up? I'm Alex Sion, founder of Marsbase. Welcome to another episode of Life on Mars, the Marsbase podcast. And in this occasion, we'll be talking about AdTech. We'll be doing it with Nandini Jami, one of the founders of Sleeping Giants, a company alerting other companies that their advertisements are being served on hate speech sites, extreme right-wing platforms, misinformation, and fake news platforms as well. So all kinds of dodgy sites all over the web, right? So we'll be talking to her and with our good friend Josh Felberg, digital media strategist and expert in ad tech, about the role of marketers in this nonsense, about why ad tech is broken, how can we make sure that our ads are funding the right companies, and how can we make sure that whenever we are allocating the budget for our marketing and advertisement efforts, we're getting the right amount of money that needs to be spent and we're not being ripped off, and whether technology can be a solution and not only the cause of this problem and how can it do it. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. When Alex obviously just chip in. Um, all right, well, I'll kick off. Uh, so Nandini, how did I get here to find out about Nandini's work? So Nandini, and obviously please do uh, uh, correct me if anything I say is wrong, but basically I was, I mean, I've worked on disinformation work, kind of anti-extremist um, online work for, well, since the so-called disinfo industry uh, sort of started um, and worked and Long story short, um, I was working with an organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, and they took a model, basically, which is one that um, Nandini pioneered. Uh, I wasn't aware of it at the time, which was essentially pressuring companies online to remove their adverts from extremist websites. Um, so in the US, I know that sleep, the, the organization Sleeping Giants and Nandini uh, co-founded they did it with Breitbart, for example. So the CCDH, as the acronym is in the UK, they started to sort of copy that model, basically. And I know they had uh, contact with Nandini. And then Nandini basically uh, put uh, a blog post out about how and why she quit Sleeping Giants, which she can uh, talk to you about. But I didn't realize she was one of the, 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 the real person sort of behind it all. So then I just basically got in contact with her and was like, I need to talk to you. I need to learn more about the work you do um and try and understand how we can bring the work i'm doing sort of around climate disinformation more than anything these days uh to sort of the work that nandini's doing and also just try and see what i could learn from her because she's a real expert in this field and then i realized that she's also doing a hell of a lot more um i wouldn't even know where to start from kind of chasing companies around ads to exposing sort of uh, ad tech companies to, you know, sort of uh, really sort of uncovering sort of uh, dodgy data fraud schemes is probably the easiest way to describe it. So a whole plethora of things. Uh, So that's basically how we met. Um, I just sort of got in contact with her essentially because of Sleeping Giants and the work there and, and then how she wrote about how she quit. And I thought her story and the work she did was super interesting. And I thought, wow, this needs to happen in different parts of the world the UK, but also in other non-English speaking parts of the world. So that's essentially how it started. So maybe Nandini, um, in Europe, the work 
uh, you did at Sleeping Giants isn't so well known, I would say, certainly outside of the English-speaking US world. So maybe if you could sort of talk to us a little bit about what you did there, maybe what you achieved, um, what your, I guess, uh, what would be your greatest achievement um, and why you quit, really. And also, like, what's the organization doing today? Is it still carrying on, et cetera, et cetera? That's a lot of questions. (laughs) <laughs> so welcome right, to yeah. the show, Nandini. I do, I do the same. Basically, I'm well known for asking seven questions in the same sentence. So <laughs> you go for it. Okay. I mean, I'll start from the very beginning. Um, in in November 2016, I was uh, I was actually living in Europe, <laughs> um, but I was uh, obviously keeping track of what was um, happening in the states. And I, um, you know, this this website called Breitbart had been growing in influence throughout the election cycle. Um, I had read about them. I had never read the actual website. I'd never actually visit, visited the website. So I uh, I went to, after the elections, I was sort of just, you know, coming to terms with what happened. And I was like, I might, might as well visit this website um, and check it out. And I knew that I was going to see a lot of disturbing headlines and uh, like offensive content, but um, I'm a marketer. And the first thing that I noticed on the website was just like all the ads. And there were ads from, some really, really big companies, um, global brands and the companies that follow me around because I have visited them before. And I was like, it's quite jarring because I don't think I'd been on a website before that was that, um, uh, you know, out there. And like... Sorry to interrupt. Can you give us some examples of the sorts of extremism? Because you had a a lovely fellow called uh, Milo Iannopoulos used to write for it. So... You, you can talk about him, but he was essentially a, became a bit of a heretic in the UK and he ended up being a star of Breitbart, but he was a, I know he was a star of lots of the articles they wrote, but what sort of stuff did you see on the website that? Oh, there, there was so many, there was mind. the, God, some of the, uh, there was one about how women, um, the reason that women aren't in tech is because they suck at interviews. That one was written by Milo and uh, that was a pretty funny one I get that like funny in the sense that um that actually uh there was a uh, workable there was a there was a software company called workable that was like so like just so progressive and so invested in their brand that they had um I mean they just seemed like a great company to work for and they are very um very invested in, in pay equity and things like that and they're in HR software um so their their ads were appearing on like alongside that article and the CEO later told the New York times that he had a heart attack. <laughs> it was like, that was not where I wanted my ads to be. And so, yeah, I mean, this is kind of what we like uncovered and um, we all know how, you know, we all experience ads as consumers, I guess. It's just that um, it, it took uh, being on a, being on a website like that for it to really kind of like jar me out of complacency and, uh, and realize, wow, okay, this is how this website is making money. They um, they've, you know, they, they have Google AdSense and they're, they're monetizing through a variety of ad exchanges. And, um, so yeah, so my instinct was to, uh, to kind of like bring, bring awareness to that. The first thing I thought was we could, we, we can and should as, um, you know, performance marketers, PPC marketers, um, block, you know, I knew that you could add this website to your exclusion list in Google. So I put out a post and I was like, Hey, you guys, like, here's what's going on. This website makes money because they write these crazy headlines and they get people angry and they're usually fake stories. And then they um, drive traffic to their website that way. And then they monetize on that traffic. So 
um, we can, we don't have to participate in this. We can all just go in and block our ads from Breitbart and they will stop making money. And it like it was like, it just made perfect sense in my head. And, um, <laughs> like I waited for this post to go viral. Um, and it never did. No one really cared. Um, but instead, I, I I did end up meeting someone um, my who ended up being my partner on the on the project, um, who had just come up with the same idea about a week before and had already started tweeting at companies with these screenshots that um, that he'd been taking under this handle called Sleeping Giants, and we started to work together. I mean, we had you know we were on the same page, and we we really. Um, I mean, there was there's no strategy or anything like that. We just wanted to to get the word out about this um, this idea that we had. So we uh, started to take these screenshots together. We were running a Twitter and a Facebook account, um, and just kind this of was like just all done not being paid. This is just all you off your own back. Oh yeah, not being paid. Um, yeah, it was just something that we were doing on like on the side <laughs> while we had um, our our full time jobs, and so the cool thing about this was that it started to take off like overnight. We, uh, I, you know, we just started with like a couple dozen followers, but because we were, uh, all our work was taking place on Twitter above the board where, um, where you could see that we were getting these instant results. And, and frankly, these, these brands were super freaked out in 26, like after the elections was a very, very tense time for everybody. And they were like, no, we, 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 you know, they were very quick to say, we don't want to be associated with this type of, um, content, God, no. <laughs> and then they would go in and they would block the ads. And this started to happen so quickly. Um, and so, uh, so frequently that we had to create a, uh, an Excel spreadsheet so we could keep track of all the companies that were coming back to us. And, uh, when people started to join us, we said, okay, I'll, like, just do what we're doing, take a screenshot, send it to, uh, the company, tweet it at the company, please be polite because these marketers, they just don't know that their ads are on the site. They're just not aware that this is happening. Yeah. And, uh, and then tag us in it and we'll amplify it. And so we started to grow, um, very quickly because like there was sort of like a watershed moment. Initially there was, um, the big sort of the first big company to come out and say something, um, like actually make a statement was Kellogg's and yeah, uh, I that, actually that was quite a big uh, that reached sort of national press in the UK yeah yeah there was a there was a Guardian article on it yeah. and then because of that um, Breitbart like right after that Breitbart started a uh, boycott Kellogg's campaign and said you know Kellogg's hate hates Breitbart readers and I don't know like 50 million Americans and um, dump Kellogg's was the the hashtag and it was amazing because it completely backfired on them. And like all the all the news outlets started to write articles about um, about this this campaign. And of course, they mentioned us. And so we had our first big growth spurt. And we never we never looked back. And you there was a second part of the question because there were many questions. But one of them was uh, actually yeah. you went on then created your own venture separately from Sleeping Giants, right? So if you can go briefly over that, and then we'll, we're going to be talking about the ethics of advertisement, why the advertisement world, world is so broken right now. But maybe you want to just touch very briefly on that before we go. Yeah. So here's what happened after that. I mean, things moved so quickly. We had um, we we later learned that Breitbart lost. 90% of its ad revenue within the first three months of our campaign. They were completely devastated. They At that time, they were planning to, like right after the elections, they were running their victory lap. They said, we're going to we're gonna ex expand our operations to France and Germany ahead of their elections. And they just kind of, 
Mm-hmm. Um, that just never happened. And um, we, you know, we just kept running. We just kept running the campaign. <laughs> we just kept going for years. And um, what was, I mean, it was awesome that we we were able to make so much change in such a short amount of time. But at the same time, I was like, how long do we have to keep running this campaign? This is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> this is um, like what's happening in the tech industry. Because I, you know, when we started the campaign, we thought, okay, this is going to be like a two week project. You know, this is really bad for brands. Nobody's going to want like there. A lot of people are going to be in a lot of trouble and things are going to change fast. It never occurred to me that, uh, you know, that the ad tech industry might not want to solve the problem. Yep. And after a few years of running, <laughs> running this, um, running this campaign, I, I seriously started to ask myself, why does sleeping giants still exist and not just exist? Cause we had like, you know, we were, we had like 300,000, 400,000 followers across Facebook and Twitter, and it was great. We were able to do a lot of things, but sleeping giants was actually growing in other countries. People had started their own, um, sleeping giants accounts. It's a completely decentralized campaign. There's nobody telling anybody what to do other than, you know, we have these basic principles of like, you know, be polite, you know, don't get involved in politics. This isn't about politics. It's about disinformation and hate. Um, and we, uh, yeah, we, we, we were growing in countries like France and Germany and, uh, Canada and Australia. They had all started their own movements and it was incredible, but I was like, why? <laughs> like, why, what, like, why hasn't this pro- problem been solved in the industry? Why are we growing? We should be going out of business. We've already found the business problem here. Brands right. don't put their ads on this type of content. What, where is the industry on this? Because I would check in, right? I was starting to learn more and more about ad tech. And I was like, uh, okay, they're, they're having conferences about this. They're having summits. There's um, technology that apparently solves the problem. Um, apparently all the ad exchanges are, you know, vetting their inventory. Like why, like, why haven't we solved this particular problem? Why is, you know, okay. Breitbart was effectively blocked by all the ad exchanges after our campaign started, but there's other Breitbart like websites, like the gateway pundit, for example, that was still being served by all the same exchanges. So effectively nothing had changed. And, um, and that's what concerned me. So I, um, in 2019, spring 2019, I, um, uh, by coincidence, or I guess it was a coincidence for me, but, uh, but Claire, my now business partner had an eye on me for a while. And she saw that, um, I was coming to Vancouver and, um, we, we, we met up in in the spring of 2019 and just immediately, um, found uh, a kindred spirit, um, within each other because we were both, uh, we both had this the same marketing background or similar marketing background and um, working in B2B tech and and growth. And we were both thinking about the same problem. So immediately when we started um, talking, we just, we just found that we were thinking about the same things and asking the same questions. And, um, and at one point I was like, I remember telling her, uh, you know, Claire, I think we're the only two people in the world thinking about the problem, thinking about this problem in the way that we are. Um, and it was sort of a profound moment for us because we were like, like, it doesn't seem like anyone is seriously solving this problem. We should probably try to do it ourselves. <laughs> um, because if all these resources have been dumped into this problem and we haven't made any progress, then what's stopping us from trying to fix and, and, it? And the problem to, to sort of summarize is essentially adverts appearing on websites that promoting extremism, race, other forms of racism, 
hate speech, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, via ad exchanges, which for the non-marketeer is, uh, and I'll try and explain it. Uh, you can probably do it better. It's you. It's a bit like you can put ads on the Google network, and they'll appear on all the sites that sign up to the Google network. But there are lots of other companies as well. All that means is that you sometimes don't really know where your adverts might end up. Is that kind of an okay explanation? Yeah, that's that's perfect. I mean, it's it's the fact that we're all using programmatic advertising. When we decide to advertise on the open web, we don't place the ads on online ourselves. We hire, you know, so to speak, we hire a company to do it for us. And that is usually for most of us, it's, it's Google. But there's other ad exchanges um, that are that are smaller than Google that um, that do the same job. And we are, as marketers, doing this work at scale. And sometimes we are appearing on, our ads are appearing on something like 400,000 websites. So, and that's because Google is placing them at scale. They just decide where to put your, put your ads. And there's a couple of categories um, within the product that you can um, choose to exclude your ads from. You don't have to be on gambling uh, sites. You don't have to be on uh, sites that are deemed as violent. You don't have to be on adult content. But there isn't a category for disinformation, um, you know, and hate speech. So it is effectively, I mean, this is what we learned, right? Like it is effectively um, punted over the job of keeping your ads off of disinformation is punted over to marketers. And I'm, I'm talking like a lot of companies have you know, like one marketer on their team doing like doing everything for them, right? Like most companies in the world are small businesses. They're not like well-resourced, uh, you know, they're not like these, you know, big banks or whatever. So yeah, even in agencies, I mean, I've been in agencies and, you know, when you're doing sort of the media planning, you essentially say, okay, well, let's just spend, you know, the numbers are astronomical, 50, 100K for this health insurance plan to this X mobile ad tech platform. You've got no idea where that's going, right? Yeah, yeah. So even in big agencies, it could still be like responsibility of one person. You just like corner it off. You've got to spend money quickly. And there's yeah. another thing, sorry yeah. to cut you off, but there's another thing. Marketers are usually incentivized to grow their numbers and work on certain metrics and KPIs, right? You want to have more clicks. You want to have more visits to your website. You want to have more referrals. You want to have this and that, more traffic. But usually they don't care about the, I mean, they might care about the quality in a certain sense, but like as long as there's people coming and the numbers increase following their metrics and the rationale, they literally don't care whether that person might be a, you know, white supremacist, right? But as long as they, they buy from my website, right? So they are not literally incentivized, at least in the short term, right? So that's why I think the advertisement is broken. Another good example, just scratching the surface, we can go as deep as you want, but scratching the surface, like Google and Apple and all of that, you can buy as keyword your own company name. So effectively speaking, my competitor might outbid me on my own company name, which is utterly ridiculous, right? How, how broken is that? Then we can go, we can speak at length about, you know, all the different ramifications of, of why advertisement is broken. But first of all, Let's start assuming that the internet, as we know it now, it's based on the foundation that advertisement rules the whole economics of the system, right? So if we got to change something, we need to change the core of the whole internet itself. I don't know how that plays out in what you're digging here, but it seems like it's kind of like wanting to change capitalism at scale, right? It's a big job. It's a big job. I know. I know. Maybe you're talking about super grand things here. But that's yeah. my po my point precisely. It's like, you know, we are putting this in, the, like we're saying that the marketers are guilty for this, but 
precisely they're just incentivized to do the, the the opposite thing just to get more clicks and grow the grow the audience yeah. right so i mean i remember when i first started in in um in marketing how long has it been for years years ago um i i you know i have a degree in marketing and everything but like i didn't actually use it right like <laughs> i um i read a lot of blogs and content from other people who are in marketing to learn how to do my tech marketing job. And, um, and all the things that I learned and the things that I was taught to care about were, um, were scaling, growing at scale. I was working at a startup. So that's something that I cared about. Um, like it seemed that PPC was King. Like I was supposed to, um, spend a lot of money and I was given all sorts of tips on how to optimize campaigns and things like that. But no one was ever like, go in and check your ad placements, your site placements. And I ended up, um, I ended up running actually only one campaign, um, before I started, uh, sleeping giants. And it was, uh, it was just a, I was given like 3000, uh, 3000 pounds because I was working for a British company at the time and, um, and asked to turn that into customers. And so I, you know, I went into this comp, I mean, like if for a noob, it's like, it's Google, Google's dashboard is extremely confusing because you don't really know what's happening with your money. Um, I was personally kind of like obsessed with where my ads were appearing. I was kind of a nerd and I was like, oh, it'd be so cool to see my ads on like CNN or the New York Times. And so I went into the site placement section where you can see where those ads appeared. And I was like, zero hedge? (laughs) Why are my ads on zero hedge? And then I saw all these like domains that like didn't even, I was like, I don't, think this is a real website. I don't think real people visit this website. And so I had this inkling like years or I wouldn't say years before, but like months before I started the Sleeping Giants campaign, I just had that in the back of my head. Like, why are my ads being served on, on, on such low quality websites? Why are we paying for that? Besides that, um, I don't think we got any customers out of it. <laughs> like, I don't, I think we may have, like, it was just such a pain in the butt to figure out, like, we weren't, you know, we were not an e-commerce company. We were like a software company. So it takes a while to figure out like who turned into a, you know, who first of all turned into a free trial user and then became a paid user. So um, like when we kind of went back and looked at it and tried to match up like what happened with this ad spend, I think we found um, like two people who maybe became customers and we're still not sure. Um, and the other thing is that I, at the time I had hooked up, I had hooked up um, the the Google like the people coming in through the Google ads to a software called Full Story, uh, which is basically a session recorder. So you can see what people like individuals are doing on your website when they get to your site. And is it recording using... and like hot jar? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I can see like where their mouse is clicking yeah. and what they're looking at. And I was like, oh, is my copy that bad? Like I had been writing the copy and making the landing pages and these these uh, these pages were loading and then the, the mouse would just go dead immediately after the page loaded. And I was like, all right, okay, it can't be that bad. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I was- you reckon that was bots or something? Like, yeah, I think we okay, paid yeah. for a shit ton of bots. Yeah. And, and 3,000 pounds is, is, I mean, it's out of control. And like, that's the kind of thing we don't talk about. And this reminds me actually, um, just like a couple of years ago, um, Chris Savage, the CEO of Wistia, uh, he tweeted out this whole thing about how they, they uh, spent like $2 million. They did this huge paid campaign uh, with billboards and, and, uh, I don't know, like a bunch of outdoor stuff, maybe print. 
And they spent a good chunk of that money on uh, digital ads. He said they, they saw better performance from a single organic blog post than they did all of their digital ads. Wow. So just to interject there. So um, I'm going to be going, because I'm marketer as well, so I'm going to go a bit nerdy here. But I've worked for quite big companies, big and small. And I've the way I, I had a very interesting experience actually uh, recently, it was actually partly as a result of reading your things, um, was that a lot of these companies, they'll give you, a, uh, oh, we'll give you X amount of clicks. Um and I was like, well, that's great, but a click in itself is useless, right? So, it was not back in the day. It was the only metric that you were measuring, yeah, right? Or you were, yeah. yeah. So then you can basically then, anyone can do it. It's not the hardest thing in the world. I basically just looked up how to sub Google Analytics and we call sort of funnel tracking and UTMs. What that allowed me to do was essentially see of organic posts, uh, money spent on this ad network, my own Facebook ads, my own Twitter ads, whatever, which ones actually led to sales. And then as a result of doing that, like for a couple of weeks, I just cut all the big ad tech and it was amazing. They'd sent thousands of clicks, not a single person had, we hadn't got a single acquisition for whatever it was. We weren't even selling an actual product. Like it was literally like a download of a white paper as a B2B type campaign. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess what my point really here is, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Do you think partly of it is just like, even in big companies, they didn't even set up the basics of analytics, which I just find staggering. And I've not, like, I've worked in massive companies, and they don't even use you know what's called UTM codes. And a UTM code for people who don't know, it basically yeah. allows you to understand not just who. It basically allows you where exactly someone came from your website. And if you set up Google properly, you can see okay, so they came from this from Facebook, and this is where they ended up. They either bought, they didn't. Whereas most ad tech companies go, oh, we'll get you X amount of clicks. But they never tell you what your acquisitions are going to be. Real quick example here, real quick example. We, do, we organize an event in the company. It's called Star Prime, right? And we have sponsors sometimes. They're big corporations. And they're like, oh, we want traffic to our website. It's like, okay, th- send, you, send me your link with the UTM, UTM code, right? And they're like, what's that? Like, how are you going to track my traffic if you don't know what a UTM is, right? So it's very difficult. I mean... Yeah, you can get like the referrer and all of that, but definitely you will be losing a lot of information the way. It's just very easy. It's just there. It's on Google. Anyway, sorry. Can you have an idea? I mean, no, these are, this tells us how little we actually know about how our money is being spent and who's actually coming to our site, right? Um, and And these are the kinds of questions, like these are the kinds of things that, no one was really talking about. But after we started the campaign, um, more and more stories started to come out. For example, in um, March, 2017, uh, JP Morgan learned that, or JP Morgan uh, you know, came out to the New York Times about the story about how they, they were appearing on 400,000 websites. They decided to go in and audit after um, someone flagged up their, their ads for them. They were like, okay, we're on 400,000 websites. Let's perform an experiment. So they swapped out that 400,000 for a uh, manually vetted 5,000 website list. So effectively an inclusion list. We're not going to appear on the entire web. We're only going to appear on these 5,000 websites. And after a while, they realized that their performance hadn't changed at all. Wow. Wow. I mean, they were paying for 395,000 websites that had no effect on their uh, on their business. And then... 
There was another story that came out in March as well. It was um, the UK. The UK found out that they had been, the UK government, various agencies are paying for ads on uh, on terrorist content on YouTube. It was about £250,000. Um, I'm pretty sure that money was already like, you know, sent off to them. And I think they learned about it through, through you know, internet users who tagged them into, uh, you know, screenshotted and tagged them in. It caused, uh, it caused a handful of companies to pause their ads. I think also have us, the, uh, the, the media agency announced that they were going to pause all their ads in the UK until Google figured something out. Um, this was, this was really big. Um, but it was also, you know, like it shows how big the problem was and how, how, um, how afraid brands were of their ads appearing on sites, uh, sites like this and ending, uh, you know, like this problem is, uh, this is the kind of problem that keeps marketers up at night, like CMOs up at night, because this is the kind of thing that can just get completely out of your control overnight, like a one viral tweet and you're screwed. Um, and yeah, and yet, uh, nothing changed over the next few years. And so we, when, when Claire and I first started to, uh, you know, like the way that Claire and I basically got into this work was first, just by understanding the very strange dynamics of how the ad tech ecosystem works. Um, in marketing, when you're a marketer, I, you know, at least for us, we were pretty divorced from what happens in ad tech. We don't really understand um, the mechanics of it. And you know, we had, I had been reading these stories for years and I was just like, how is it that Havis, that one of the biggest media agencies in the world paused their ads and like nothing changed, like nothing changed. They just came back. Like what is happening internally? So that's what I was curious to learn about. Um, so, so, so Claire and I in, uh, in 2019, in late 2019, we both started to dig into the advertising industry just by talking to people, talking to experts in ad tech and, Hey, can you help us understand like how, how any of this works? How, what are the dynamics here? And, um, who are the players? How does the tech work? How do these mechanisms work? How did the relationships work? And what we gradually started to understand through a series of conversations from different points of view was that there is a, a, a large apparatus, the ad tech, you know, the ad tech ecosystem is made up of, um, you know, the, the, the ad exchanges like, um, you know, like, of course, like Google and Facebook and all that, um, who are kind of everyone, you know, there's ad exchanges, there's, um, ad agencies, there's, uh, you know, DSP, uh, uh, de demand side platforms, supply side platforms. There's a whole bunch of like behavioral targeting platforms and data brokers. And there's just everywhere you go, there's, there's just, there's a different player and they're all trying to get their cut of an enormous amount of money. Uh, I think in 2019 or 2020, um, over, the digital advertising, global digital advertising budget was around $300 billion. $300 billion was spent by uh, digital marketers. So there's an enormous amount of money to be made. And they, uh, every player in the industry is, is trying to, is working towards um, getting these marketers to spend more and more money, uh, as much money as possible, because the way that everyone makes money in the system, in the supply chain, um, is by taking a percentage of that cut. 
And so that's why volume and scale is so important. That's why we're always talking about it. Um, it's because, you know, the more, the more you spend, the more I as an agency make, or I as a ad exchange make, um, or I as a brand safety vendor make. So nobody's interest is in understanding what's going on in the data. It's just like aggregate. How much are you spending in aggregate? And that exactly. is reflected. That is reflected in the way that uh, that data is presented to you. Because when uh, when you're uh, particularly if you're if you've if you've outsourced your advertising to somebody else, it's likely that you know, your agency or whoever's doing your advertising for you is presenting you with aggregate numbers. So here's your overall conversion. Here's your, here's your overall impressions. Here's your overall clicks. But they're not going to tell you exactly what's going on in your data. It's very rare for companies to know what's happening at a site level or a log level. Because, uh, I mean, just for example, we, we ended up doing an audit for a company called headphones.com. Uh, they're a high-end headphones company, um, like $400, $500 or even more um, headphones. So a very um, high-quality product with you know very discerning customers. And we found their ads on a website um, called Epoch Times that peddles in conspiracy theories and, um, and a lot of just junk science. And... Um, and the CEO let us do an audit. So we audited their um, their advertising and we found that uh, we made we made a handful of recommendations to them. We did find them on a ton of disinformation sites. They were using a um, a product, a, a, a retargeting uh, service called Critio. Um, and that- They're in that, Barcelona where we are. They're in Barcelona too, yeah. Oh. <laughs> we have some okay. friends there. Well, not very, not, you know, friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I will. I will uh, refrain from commenting. But let's just say they're uh, the way they get clicks is a. Uh, let's just say people. I've had people allegedly tell me things that they wouldn't want repeated. Well, I mean, I'm happy to tell you what we what we found, which is that they were spending twelve hundred dollars a day a day on uh, on uh, ads, and after they made a handful of recommendations that we suggested to them their ad spend went down from 1200 to $40 a day. Wow. Yeah. And actually it brings me to my next question. Well, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 95% of their advertising. Yeah. Garbage. So, so question then like, um, I'm going to, the answer is obvious in a way, but how, like, how does this happen? Like, how can, like, well, aside from the fact that companies definitely need to get a grip of their own analytics, how does a company that's listed on the stock exchange get to that position where they're able to do that? I, I just let, let, let me add up to that because I think that, and that's my question for both of you because you understand the, the marketing world better than I do, but I think it's precisely the, the, business, the business model of most marketing agencies is to work at volume, not at uh, the value they add, right? There's no margin, little margin. Therefore, they need to go to large volumes of accounts, large volumes of data, whatever. So the, what we end up getting from these companies is a copy paste for, from something that has worked for similar clients, right? And I don't know if that's what causes this, you know, a loss of boutique sense or, or boutique outcomes. And there are not a lot of marketing, boutique marketing agencies out there, are they? As opposed to maybe other fields like um, lawyers or developers that maybe we care a little bit more about customizing everything. I don't know if you can do it at scale with that kind of data. 
maybe that's you know complete ignorance here. So I want to hear both of your opinions. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that happens when we ask too too long of a question. Actually, I just wanted to go back to what Josh said. Could you just say that one more time so I could remember? Me, I guess the question is that the, for me there are two things. Like one is big companies. Like why don't they in their analytics? That still astounds me, and yeah. I don't know the answer to that. The second question is how does a company, one that you just named, basically get away with what they're doing? And we're not talking a small company, right? We're talking a U.S. New York Stock Exchange listed company that I can go and buy public shares from now, and they're doing that. How? Like, yeah. that's the equivalent of basically Alex, who builds websites, building websites that when you click on the links, they don't go anywhere. Yes. So Which this is the wrong example, but you know what I mean. I can answer both of your questions with, I believe, with one answer. Um, and this was actually the subject of one of our recent um, newsletters, uh, branded.substack.com. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, that out at the end, it's awesome, by the way, you should all read yeah. it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is such a good question. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about how it's possible that this, like this, like level of, of absurdity has been allowed to continue for so long. And I, I think that at least one of the answers lies in the fact that whenever these companies get into trouble, they respond by, um, offering to hand over more so-called control over to you. They, uh, and they call it granularity. They're like, well, like it really sucks that this happened and it shouldn't have happened. What we're going to do right now is pledge to give you even more control over your ads. Um, we're going to give you more tools. We're going to give you more um, options and solutions to, uh, to control where your ads are going. What they don't do is, so they give you all sorts of convoluted tools that you can't use, that no one has time to use, that no one knows how to use. Yeah, they like they do say, for example, speaking to insiders, Chris, uh, they do say, oh, yeah, we do have a dashboard. I'm like, well, what the hell is in that dashboard if it's not showing you acquisitions? Yeah, and actually uh, for headphones.com, they they gave him only an access to a uh, like the aggregate. So we couldn't see which websites were actually, you know, providing them with results. Yeah. Sort of like a vendor lock-in, right? It's like, well, we do have the know-how. You don't. I can give you access, but like you will not understand it. You need to continue working yeah. with me, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's what they. Um, that's what they do. They. I mean, well, in this case, you know, I think. I mean, I. I can't say for sure, but it's possible that. Uh, like this is the default dashboard you receive as a customer at Critio. Um, I'm I wouldn't be surprised if that's the uh, default for other you know other competitors and other companies that you know that have site placements and and offer um, offer the similar services. So that's that's kind of like they're playing this game in sort of two ways. They they claim they're collecting all sorts of data, but you don't get to see it. They don't show it to you. Mm -hmm. um, they don't present it to you when, you know, at a lot of, um, if you, again, if you've outsourced your advertising to somebody else and they're, you're paying them on a, on a um, volume basis, then they're not going to be incentivized to show you how much they're spending and where it's going. Um, 
And if you don't complain, nothing happens, right? Well, like, and then also if you are all the for me. If you are if you want to complain about disinformation and 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 uh hate speech in your media by, they will come back to you and say, This is in our inventory because we believe in free speech, or I don't know, whatever mm. their story is there, but they won't take responsibility for that website being in their inventory and they will say, if you don't want that in your inventory, block it out. Well, how are you supposed to know which websites in these like bajillion webs like across the internet are? If I don't ask you first, right? Because I don't know. It's like a black box inventory. for me as a client. Yeah. Like, aren't you supposed to do that? And that's that's the other thing. All of these websites, all of these platforms tell you that they care very much about your brand safety. They say they have a strong human, uh, you know, based vetting process. And yet, you know, someone like me goes in and looks at, you know, the gateway pundit, I'm the one who got gateway pundit kicked off of three ad exchanges last year. I just went and I emailed everybody or I asked a reporter to go talk to, <laughs> to talk to the company. Um, Critio, AdRoll and Magnite, what used to be Rubicon project, we're all working with the gateway pundit, which is just as bad, just as well known as Breitbart until last year. And we will not go into the free speech thing because it's opening in a whole new can of worms. And we're actually running out of time. We got 10 minutes left. And I wanted to comment on something. I want to end on a positive note here because I'm at technologies, wherever that means, right? And we know that technology has created this problem, but technology will solve this problem. I'd like to believe, I am of the belief that technology will have to solve this problem, right? How do you envision this will happen when, you know, product and marketing are often at loggerheads when it comes to solving these kind of problems because marketers want more, want to spend more and want to grow these their KPIs, whatever. But, you know, at the same time, there's product who say like for the best UX, it's better to have no advertisement, but no advertisement means no money. Therefore, marketer wins the conversation, right? Or the argument, right? How do you envision, how do you foresee that technology can play a pivotal role here in solving the same problems that has actually caused? I don't view technology as solving this problem. That's this a good is, answer. <laughs> yeah, this is not a technology problem. This is a culture problem. Marketers have been taught that we need to spend as much as possible, that it doesn't, um, uh, that that we need to, to uh, uh, grow at all costs. And uh, that has been sort of, a tenant of, of digital marketing for many years. And after working sort of as an activist and marketer side by side for, for the past few years, I've seen what it, what I believe is a, a real fundamental shift since 2016 in consumer culture, which is, um, which is that consumers understand uh, thanks to the work of, of, you know, sleeping giants and, and grab your wallet and, uh, March for Our Lives and all sorts of um, activist campaigns, and you know, of course, uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. They are starting to understand how um, a company's digital ad spend impacts their own community well-being and their own safety and the safety of the of their loved ones. And they are demanding that marketers know where their ads are going. So this is a a shift. People. People didn't care about this stuff before 2016. They do now. And they're putting the onus on marketers and advertisers to, um, to lead the way for that change. We saw this in July of this past year when the Facebook ad boycott was launched. It was a, a one-month um, 
boycott only, but it forced a, a lot of very large companies for the first time to start thinking uh, about really big existential questions like, oh, where do, where would, like, first of all, why is this even a problem? Who, like, why is there a boycott happening? What is happening on this platform? They're just not really aware of, uh, of the sort of white nationalist organizing that's taking place on, on Facebook and Facebook groups, um, particularly at the CEO level. They're like, what? Like, what are we supposed to do if we don't advertise on Facebook? And then the next question is, should we join this boycott? And then the next question is, well, if we join the boycott, like, how do we, like, when do we come back to Facebook? And there's just, where do we go when, it, when we don't advertise on Facebook? Like really, really, uh, you know, big questions because they realize for the first time that consumers want answers from them. Consumers want solutions uh, from advertisers. So, um, so what I think is happening is a real sea change in the way that marketers are going to be thinking in the future as they realize that the systems that we are operating are fundamentally broken. Because if you want to leave Facebook, then you're at, maybe you're going to go to Twitter. Maybe you're going to go to the open web. Maybe you're going to go to TikTok. And you realize all of these places are cesspools of, of disinformation and fake news and um, and hate. And and there, there really is no safe place on the internet. So what is what is needed now in this moment is for marketers, the people who hold the the, the purse uh, the purse strings, to start demanding um, better media environments, better social media environments, better rules, better uh, you know access to their own data, so that they can be accountable to their customers, to their stakeholders, and how they they spend their money. Um, they're also going to, I believe, as we learn more and more about how money is being wasted, um, you know, to the tune of potentially hundreds of millions of dollars, like in the case of um, Uber, which found out that they had um, been defrauded out of a hundred million dollars when, uh, when, when they tried to go in and turn off their their Breitbart ads because Sleeping Giants was on the case <laughs> of their butts, and um, and realized that you know, the, the ads were still slipping through because actually, wait, we've been defrauded um, for, for many years uh, by potentially multiple vendors. Um, they, you know, they, they are starting to realize that if they don't have a grasp of how their ads, you know, where their ad money is going, that their businesses are in, in real trouble. So um, I, I hope that, and, and sort of the positive note that I would love to leave on is that um, that we all realize through this work, through this collective, um, as we learn more and more about the advertising industry, that we are operating in a system that is not designed to serve marketers at the end of the day. It is not designed to serve advertisers. It's designed to serve the bottom line of ad tech companies that siphon off billions of dollars. And we, um, you know, maybe you'll invite me on another day to talk about how, um, you know, they not only siphon off money from, you know, um, uh, make advertiser money disappear into thin air, but they also are systematically blocking it even from the news um, using technology that doesn't quite work the way that they say it does. Um, but what my hope is, as as that as we learn about um, how the ad tech industry is failing us, that we start to think about and really reimagine what. Uh, what we want out of an what we want out of an advertising um, industry. I want marketers to start demanding um, better services and even better metrics. 
why are we beholden to vanity metrics like clicks and impressions and views when we could be thinking about attention and, you know, recall and brand loyalty? Those are the things that create long-term, you know, long-term brands and long-term brand equity and long-term, you know, customer loyalty. So I want us to be thinking about, um, and this is really my, my, my real call to action is like, other than checking your ads, which I think every marketer running in any ad campaign should do is to really think about what it is that you want out of, uh, out of the tools that you use out of your, um, marketing strategy. How do you want to connect with, with customers? If you could, um, if you could have anything that you wanted rather than again, negotiate in a broken system and, uh, you know, stay up at night wondering, you know, where my ads are at. Like that just doesn't seem like a good system for anybody. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to, uh, Alex, we've got to stop in a couple of minutes. So we'll have to run there. Absolutely fascinating. We didn't even get to talk about the defunding of uh, news, which was a topic that I was particularly interested in. Um, There's loads we could talk about, to be honest, but we'll have to call it a day. I'd love to have you back on at some point, if that's okay. Um, But I'm going to give the last question to Alex, which is the final, most important question of the day. The most important, before that, I wanted to to challenge you on something, because this is something that you said that that I really agree on. It's like, technology is not going to solve. Well, I think it will solve, but education is also part part of the equation, right? But education, I would argue, takes longer to sort of, you know, expand and transmit what you, like the solution, whatever that might be, right? So, because, you know, if we educate our children now, future generations will solve the problem, but we really need something and maybe technology can solve things at scale immediately. Can, you know, you develop something on Twitter, like something I've seen today, like if you're about to retweet something, an article that you haven't clicked on, Mm -hmm. it will alert you, hey, you haven't read it. And that costs literally five minutes to develop that shit, right? But it's counterintuitive to, to develop it because it goes against your growth principles because fewer people will retweet that. So sometimes I think here, to not, I'm not saying that Twitter is doing the right thing in many, many things they've done in the past. But in this one, I think it's good. And it goes against marketing or growth principles. So I think that technology in yeah. certain things, we can also uh, you know solve part of, the, right. part of the thing. But I really agree. Education, you know, we all need to, to re- question and doubt about like, all the things that are going on, how this functions, why advertisement is the foundational basis of the economics of the internet and so forth. There's so many questions out there. But the ultimate question is the one, the signature question that we've got in this podcast. Uh, and, you know, we ask so many questions and it is completely unrelated to the topic here. But I think that I want to hear a proper answer on this one. It's probably the most difficult question you will have ever heard. It is, everybody has got a useless superpower, something you do exceptionally well, but it's fucking useless. But you do it every day. You do it better than no one else. But it's useless as fuck. <laughs> what oh, is it? man. Um, we always get this. I, I have so many useful superpowers. I guess I can't tell you about that. Um, no, we're not interested. Everybody knows about useful superpowers. <laughs> right? But useless are the best. Yeah, useless has to be useless. It doesn't count. Josh has got quite a few. I do have like at least I've got at least 37. <laughs> wow. Tell me one of your su- useless superpowers while I come up with mine. Like, for instance, the one I tweeted the other day is that, you know, we organized this event. It's an online event, but it used to be offline. I always scheduled that event on the same day and time as my favorite soccer club matches, right? Always. Last week we had one. Barca was playing at the same time. I was like, how did I do it again? Like, literally happens every single time. That's a useless superpower. 
That's hilarious. Um, yeah, my useless superpower. Oh, I have a useless superpower. I have multiple to-do lists of the same to-do list. So I, I don't know, like, I, I think it kind of gives me some joy to cross out things on my to-do list multiple times. So I have like a phone to-do list, like on, like I have an app, but I also the same items. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. Like I'll write, I'll write it down and I'll also put it in my phone and then I like cross it out twice. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to outdo you here. Cause I've got that. My to-do list today. The first thing was merged to-do lists. <laughs> That's meta. I'm not joking. And I have a, I literally have a remind, I, I have a WhatsApp group with myself, which I use. Me too. Which is one of them here. Wow. So I have that group with Alex. I kick him out and it remains my group. That's one of my <laughs> But that's and a productivity that's- hack that's actually pretty useful because you're <laughs> it on the top of your WhatsApp that and it's a reminders. People. Yeah. Actually, I think yours could be turned, if you wanted to, to sell it as useful superpowers, like I've got backups for my to-do list. <laughs> you want to make it useless. It's like I haven't replicated to the list so many times. I don't even, I, I even lost count of I think it's a, it's a great one. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you very much, Nandini. Uh, super insightful, super. I, I'm sorry we have to cut it here. Our conversations usually run for 45, 50 minutes, and we're, so we're out of time. But definitely, there's so many topics we haven't covered. Free speech. We haven't talked about what you mentioned about the, well, you, you've been sort of touching on the Uber case here, right? Or the ethics of technology. How can product uh, improve this? So there are so many things that we need to we need to question and learn from. I'm pretty sure that we'll be inviting you over again, if you're so generous in the, in the, in the future for sure. a future episode. So one last minute for you to say what's going on in your life, something we need to know, something that our audience can find out about you or how can we help you? Um. Well, we, I mean, I got to plug my, my newsletter, um, branded.substack.com is is where where we started this journey, where we first started to write what we're learning about marketing. We expected it to be, um, we expected really like nobody to read it, but we have, um, like over 7,000 subscribers now who, uh, who are, are reading and learning. And, um, we're also starting a podcast this year about, uh, about ad tech. You guessed it. You got it right. <laughs> um, Great. And that is that is going to be our way of telling the ad tech story of what is happening in this ecosystem to the general public. We've been telling the story to marketers, but we want to create um, a real pressure, a real pressure from the public because we believe that is what will drive um, this industry to change. So keep an eye out for that. Immeasurable. Huh? If, you pay, if you pay us some money, we'll send you some clicks to your podcast. Yeah, correct. Yeah. If I advertise, Josh said that because he's the marketer. Okay. So <laughs> let me add this. If you send the links to all this stuff, I do have the one from your newsletter. We'll add it to the show notes. And um, I'm happy to contribute with modest quality traffic, not automated, non <laughs> bots. <laughs> Thank you very much. We're going to be here. I'll see you on the next episode of Live Mars. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are Mars based, an all remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies from startups to big corporations to conceptualize, design and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?